at the beginning of the year, when I announced that we would be doing Core 52, covering 52 of the most essential Bible verses this year, I think there's one verse that everyone knew we would cover, and, and that's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We've all heard this a hundred times if we haven't heard it a thousand times. Somehow, some way, though, I want you to hear it fresh. I want you to, to hear this with the same sense of revelatory newness that John's first readers of his gospel would have read this verse 2,000 years ago. And so I want to begin by helping you step into the sandals of a man who in John chapter 3 began with a clandestine visit at night to meet Jesus. And he ended up discovering the love of God, a love that redefines everything. Now, his name is Nicodemus. He is a Pharisee. Now, history has given Pharisees a, a bad reputation, right? They're the hard-nosed legalists um, that conspired to crucify the very Messiah they claimed to be waiting for. But they would rather deny the truth than sacrifice their own power, position, and prestige. But as is often the case, what is true of the group is not always true of the individual. And on this night, there is one Pharisee who comes seeking the truth. And he comes not in a professional capacity, but in a personal capacity. He comes not out of curiosity like so many others, but out of conscience. His search is genuine. But still, he comes under the cover of darkness. Now, John doesn't reveal to us his motivations for coming at night. But it is true that Nicodemus has much to protect and much he can't risk losing. You see, he is a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. This is sort of their supreme court that met in the hall of hewn stones that was built right into the north wall of the temple. And if word got out among the 71 prominent members, the 70 other guys on that council, that, that Nicodemus, one of their own, was out seeking Jesus, well, there's no telling what the fallout might be. And so Nicodemus comes in the shadows away from prying eyes and tattling lips. He comes in the shadows, perhaps because there's a darkness that covers his own heart. You see, while the other members of the Sanhedrin refuse to believe, Nicodemus has seen the miracles that Jesus has performed, and only the power of God could explain the, the wonders that Nicodemus has seen and that he's heard about from reliable sources. How could you explain such things? Unless, no. Could this Jesus possibly be? Hmm. Nicodemus can only wonder. 
he rightly calls Jesus' miracles signs because they are signposts pointing to the truth. And Nicodemus has been following the signs. Now, the Sanhedrin party line doesn't fit with what Jesus actually says, right? Despite the arguments of the religious leaders, Nicodemus has heard Jesus teach, and he feels the divine power in Jesus' words. And there have always been things that, that bothered him. The crooked money changers at the temple, for instance. What good, what's good for business is good for the temple, they would say. But it never sat well with Nicodemus. But no one would confront the corruption until Jesus. For too many nights, Nicodemus lay in bed, wide awake, wondering. Could Jesus possibly be the Messiah? Could this be the coming of the kingdom? Well, during yet another sleepless night, Nicodemus decides to wonder no more. He has to know. He wants to know. He has longed for the kingdom. He has longed for the Messiah. And if Jesus is the one, well, then it doesn't matter what the others say. Then does it? And so he makes his way to Jesus. I can picture him in my mind. Between every furtive glance over his shoulder, he rehearses his words. And yet when he finds Jesus, the practiced words cannot hide the tremor in his voice. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus has rightfully added two and two and come up with four. Now, Nicodemus hasn't even asked a question yet. But as he so often does, Jesus gets straight to the heart of the issue. Despite the darkness, Jesus sees Nicodemus's heart quite clearly. This Pharisee came seeking the kingdom, and so Jesus points him to the kingdom. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. <laughs> what sort of riddle is this? Nicodemus wonders, how does a full-grown man get born a second time? And so he asks, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. But it's not a man's body that needs a new birth. It's a soul. And only one thing can dispel the darkness of the human heart. And that is not a, a birth of womb and the flesh, but a but of baptism and spirit. And so Jesus answers Nicodemus, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Now, Jesus says this as though the truth is obvious. But Nicodemus is still confused. Now, there are few in the country with his knowledge, with his education, but still Nicodemus can't follow Jesus. How can this be, he asked. Now, 
there is patience in the words Jesus speaks next, but I think also some exasperation. These things have been foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus has spoken of the truth of these things, and yet there is this darkness that keeps Nicodemus from seeing. But the darkness isn't a lack of understanding. It's an unwillingness to believe. Jesus says this, you are Israel's teacher. In other words, you, you should know. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Nicodemus should have known. He could have known, right? For he has studied the prophets more than anyone. He knows the old scriptures better than anyone. The prophet Ezekiel foretold of, of how God would give his people a new nature. He promised, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. But even as Nicodemus doesn't understand the prophets, he should be able to believe what he's seen with his own eyes, what he's heard with his own ears from Jesus. Suddenly, Nicodemus is, is once again a young pupil in school, unable to move on to the more advanced lesson because he still can't grasp the first lesson. It's a frustration that Jesus would frequently have with God's people. They could hear what he said, but not listen to a word. They could witness the works he would perform, but still not see a thing. But Nicodemus is different. Right? He truly wants to know the truth. But he's blinded by the same thing that I think sometimes blinds you and me. I mean, we really want to learn Maybe we really want to know, but our search, our understanding is darkened by the others around us, right? Our thoughts are so easily swayed by the opinions of others. And so sometimes you just have to go find out for yourself, regardless of what everyone else has said. So if Nicodemus truly wants to know the heavenly truth, he's come to the right place. As Jesus tells him, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And of course, Jesus is talking about himself. You see, all other teachers can only speculate about heavenly things. Only Jesus speaks as an expert witness. And Jesus then reaches deep into Israel's history to illustrate one of the greatest heavenly truths that Nicodemus will ever hear. When Nicodemus' forefathers wandered in the wilderness under Moses, there came a time when, when they grumbled and they complained against Moses and against God and accused them of, of the worst of motivations. And so God sent serpents among the people, and, they, and these serpents had a, a fiery, venomous bite. 
So the people quickly repented of their sin and they begged Moses, please pray to God to take the snakes away. We're sorry, we won't do it again. And so God had the people make a serpent from bronze and they set it up on a pole so that anyone who was bit by a snake could look up to that serpent on a pole and be saved. That's pretty weird stuff. I mean, that's strange. Why would God do it that way? What was the point of all of that? Well, Jesus gives Nicodemus a, a, a glimpse at the answer here. You see, the serpent on a pole was just a picture of a greater reality. Jesus says that in the same way that he would be lifted up on a pole, think of the cross, that he would become sin for us so that everyone bitten by the serpent of sin could be saved. Now, what's the deal with the serpent? Well, the serpent points us all the way back to creation. Think of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and the temptation that comes in the garden. And it points to the original serpent, Satan, who first tempted the first man and the first woman into sin, you know. And so throughout Scripture, the serpent becomes the symbol for Satan, for sin, disobedience, rebellion. And every man and every woman ever since Adam and Eve has been bitten by that same serpent. But on the cross or on the pole, if you will, Jesus took upon all of that sin on himself. He, he in essence, became sin for us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? Jesus became our sin so that we could become his righteousness. An amazing transaction took place. And so Jesus promises Nicodemus, and he promises you and me here, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Now, maybe you've heard that invitation more times than you can count. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in Jesus and you will have eternal life. But for Nicodemus, this is stunning, startling news. This is a man who has devoted his entire life to to meeting God's approval, trying to earn God's acceptance. You see, the Jews did not view God as a loving heavenly father, not at all. And if they viewed him as a father of any kind, it was a stern, demanding father who, the kind of dad who would would criticize you for raising a C to a B, wondering why you didn't get an A. His standards were exacting, his expectations out of reach, his approval was rare unless you followed all of the rules. But here is Jesus telling Nicodemus, this Pharisee, that God has offered salvation to everyone. Not just to the really good people, not to just the people who follow all the rules, not to just the Jews. To everyone who believes. That 
truly mind-blowing stuff here for Nicodemus and for us. So next comes perhaps the most well-known words in all of the Bible. Interestingly enough, we're not even sure who said them. All right, some red-letter Bibles, you know, that put the words of Jesus in red, have these as the words of Jesus. All right, for God so loved the world. All right, but other translations have the quotation marks for Jesus' words ending at verse 15. Now, one thing you've got to keep in mind here is that the original parchments and scrolls of Scripture, they didn't have quotation marks and punctuation and paragraphs and all of these things that we are accustomed to. All right, so a lot of times it comes down to our best guess as to who said what and which words go with which speaker. So in other words, John 3.16 might be Jesus' words to Nicodemus spoken on that shadowy night, or they may be John's words to us as his readers. Ultimately, though, it doesn't matter, because either way, these words were spoken by either by the divine Son of God, or they were written by the power of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so whether spoken by Jesus or written by John, these are God's words to us. And John 3.16, our core verse this week, is the shortest, simplest, sweetest explanation of the good news ever given. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, if I could summarize John 3.16 even more, it is this. God loves us. And if I could make it more personal, it is this. God loves you. Why did God send Jesus? Why did Jesus come? Why did he go to the cross? In a word, the answer is love. God sent Jesus because he loves us. Jesus came because he loves us. Jesus died on the cross because he loves you. Now, we hear about love a lot in our culture, all right? Um, it's in all kinds of songs and movies talk about it. Politicians talk about it. You know, love is the answer. Love is all you need. Love is what makes the world go round. Our culture is in love with love, right? We love love. We love all sorts of things. We love pizza. We love strawberry banana smoothies. We love our husband. We love our wife. We love a day at the spa. We love uh, Saturday morning hitting yard sales. We love our children. We love the Chiefs. We love the Cardinals. We love our best friend. We love brown, a brownie right out of the center of the pan. We love it when all the lights are green. We love our cat. We love our dog. We love being on the lake on a crisp spring morning and the water is like glass. We love our hobbies. We love a long hot bath. With all of this love, the one thing, though, that there seems to be a shortage of is love. There's no love on the city streets filled with broken glass of shop windows and canisters of tear gas. 
There's a little love on social media when we vent angry missives like hand grenades without thought of where they might go off. There's a little love in a hurting, broken marriage where husband and wife go to bed back to back. It might be a queen-size bed, but there are miles between them. There may be little love after months of pandemic fatigue, right? And you're tired of so-called experts telling you what to do, do this, don't do that. And the last thing you want to hear right now is just another opinion. When John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, it's not talking about love songs and warm fuzzy feelings. It's not love in the same way that you love a, a medium rare steak with a perfect sear, or you love binge watching your favorite show. It's love greater than your love for your children, your friends, or your parents. It's even deeper than the love that you have for your girlfriend or boyfriend, your husband or your wife. You see, the Greeks, they had several different words for love. All right. For instance, there was phileo, which is the love of deep friendship. There was storge, which was the deep affection and affinity shared between family members. And of course, there was eros, which is erotic love, the intimate passion shared between lovers. And they had other words too. And, and all of these words can be translated into English as love. But when Jesus comes along announcing the the love of God. When the apostles begin writing letters to all these brand new churches, none of those words were sufficient to describe the love of God. Right? They had to come up with a whole new word to describe how God loves us. And the word that, that they came up with, the word that Jesus uses here in John 3.16 is Agape. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard that before. But if it's new to you, uh, let me kind of describe it or, or remind you of what it means. Uh, it can be defined a number of different ways. Agape is an unconditional love. It is a love of action rather than a love of feeling. So agape describes not how you feel, but what you do. Um, it is a love for the unlovely. It is a love for those who don't deserve it, can't reciprocate it, won't appreciate it, and aren't able to offer anything in return. Now, all of those other words for love um, are based in some way on what you get out of it, all right? Phileo. All right, the, 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 the friendly love. I love you because of our companionship. I love you because of our shared interests and all of the things that we do together. Or, or storge, all right, the family love. I love you because we're in the same family together. We live together. We, we grew up together. We take care of each other. And we've got all of this shared history together. Or eros, all right. I love you because, well, we all understand how erotic love works. But here is the real difference between 
agape love and all those other kinds of love. All right, all the other kinds of love say, I love you because, right? I love you because of what you do for me. I love you because of how you make me feel. I love you because of the fun we have together, right? That's all the other kinds of love. But agape love is simply this. I love you, period, right? There's no because. There's no conditions, no strings attached, no mutual benefit, no symbiotic relationship, just pure, generous, sacrificial willingness to give the other person what they need, even if you get nothing in return. Right? And agape will do all of this because you need it. And that's it. And so this new word was needed because this kind of love changes everything. And that is the amazing truth of John 3.16. Now, this love of God should affect us in a couple of different ways. First, I want to talk to, to those of you who are followers of Jesus. Right? You consider yourself a Christian. God's love for the world and God's love for you becomes our primary model for how we are to love others, all right? We love others the same way that God loves us. It's an example for us to follow. As God so loved the world, we also ought to love one another, all right? Now, let me give you another way of looking at it. Um, agape love should redefine all of those other kinds of love, all right? Agape love redefines our phileo love, you know, the love among friends, right? What happens to our friendships if we begin to love our friends unconditionally? You know, if we're not constantly trying to measure uh, who gives what and who takes what in friendships and, and trying to keep it even, Agape love redefines our storge love, our, our love of family. Wow, wouldn't that change our homes if we learn to love our parents or our children or our siblings with that unconditional, generous love? If we could get rid of the, the one-upsmanship, the tracking of unmet expectations, the bargaining, the disappointments, the guilt trips, right? it would revolutionize our families. And for you married couples, what if agape redefined our eros? I, I know I need to tread carefully here. But so often, though, there is no more selfish love than erotic love. And in those passionate moments, um, it can be all about what we want and satisfying what I want. Right? But what if... Every Christian husband and every Christian wife turned that around and treated those intimate moments as an opportunity to give what the other wanted, regardless of what you got out of it. And I'm telling you, folks, the world has no idea what good sex is until they've tried agape sex. Secondly, let me talk to those of you who 
you're not a Christian yet. Maybe you're out there on the edges of faith. You're still looking. You're dipping your toes in the water. But you wouldn't yet say, you know, you're a Christian. Here's what you need to take away from this. God loves you. Think about this. God loves you. He loved you before you ever believed in him. He loves you already. God loved you before uh, you ever gave a care about what he thought. God loved you even when he was the furthest thing from your mind. I think most of us would describe ourselves as, as loving people. There's a few people out there that, yeah, I'm a mean son of a gun, and I'm proud of it. But I think most of us believe, hey, we should, we should love people. Yeah, I love everyone. And we've got no problem loving everyone in general. In fact, to be honest with you, I think sometimes loving everyone in general becomes an excuse for loving no one in particular. Um, and that's where the rubber meets the road because that's where we have a hard time. Not loving everyone, but it's loving specific people. And you can immediately think of a name or two of somebody who's very hard to love. But when John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, don't read that like well, God loves everybody in general. There's a t-shirt I saw um, that kind of puts a, a humorous spin on that idea. It says, Jesus loves you, but then again, he loves everyone. No, when it says, for God so loved the world, it means that God loves you specifically. God loves you, so he sent Jesus to save you so that he could know you and you could know him and you could have a relationship with him. Jesus died for your sins specifically. And since God is infinite, all right, his heart has an infinite capacity for individual specific love, all right? Just because he loves me specifically doesn't mean that he loves you any less. And that's what it means when it says, for God so loved the world. It means for God so loved you and you and you and you and everyone. Now, there's one other word that I want to highlight in this verse, and it's this word, Whoever. What a big, beautiful word that is. As in, whoever believes in him. Whoever. That means anyone, right? That means everyone, even you, right? Regardless of your past, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what anyone has done to you because there is absolutely nothing in your life that makes you so unlovely that God doesn't love you. Whoever means that you can believe in him because he loves you and he promises you eternal life. We don't know how long that Jesus and Nicodemus talked. We don't know at what hour Nicodemus returned home. But I believe he walked home in the light. No, I don't mean the hour of day, but I believe a shadow had been lifted from his heart. Nicodemus 
went home a changed man. He received the love of God. He believed in Jesus. And Nicodemus no longer had to earn God's approval with his perfect performance. For now he knows that God already loves him. John mentions Nicodemus two more times in his gospel. In John chapter 7, we get a glimpse of Nicodemus on this council of the Sanhedrin. You see, the officials were looking for a cause to arrest Jesus and bring him in. Now, Nicodemus may have been only one voice among 71, but he speaks up in Jesus' defense, arguing that he should receive a fair hearing. So it shows that, that Nicodemus has already had this, this change of heart, maybe this new birth Jesus was talking about. Now, Nicodemus's reasoning wouldn't restrain the leaders for long, but we see that seed of faith growing and bearing fruit. Finally, in John chapter 19, towards the end of his gospel, we see Nicodemus, among other believers, helping prepare Jesus' body for burial. Um, Nicodemus is no longer in the shadows. And church history tells us that Nicodemus was indeed a man of faith. So my prayer for you, as you're hearing this, is that either you have been reminded of the incredible love that God has for you, or maybe you're seeing it for the first time. I know that somebody listening to this really needed to hear this message of love. And I don't say that because I have some sort of gift of prophecy. I just say that because we're people and we need the love of God. And maybe that's you today. You need to be reminded. You needed to remember you needed to know that God loves you. Thank you, and God bless.